Across the world, forests are in flames, oceans are in flames, and so are we. Microplastics build up in human and non-human bodies, rainwater is full of forever chemicals, and the pervasive impacts of state and capitalist violence are passed down generations as trauma, dispossession, and disease. In their book, Inflamed, Raj Patel and Rupa Maria unravel the many injustices that take root in our own bodies as inflammation and illness, and how colonial medicine is incapable of diagnosing the problem, let alone fixing it. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and for this week's Navara FM, I sat down with Rupa and Raj to talk to them about inflammation and how we might begin the revolutionary process of healing. So Rupa and Raj, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to talk about uh, your fascinating work, Inflamed. I'm just wondering, before we get into the meat and potatoes of your work, about this framework of the web of life, you talk a lot about the connection and rather the, the disconnection that we as a species have experienced in the last sort of 600 years of cosmological warfare and ecological warfare that capitalism has waged on us. And uh, the web of life seems to be an important framework in understanding how that all works. So I was wondering, Raj, if you could kick us off by explaining what you mean by that. Often the way that this gets talked about is thinking about the difference between nature and society in a, a sort of vein of Marxist analysis called uh, world ecology uh, that my colleague Jason W. Moore uh, has done a lot of work on. The idea here is that historically capitalism has created this bifurcation between uh, what counts as society and what counts as the things that beyond society. And the category of society has historically expanded due to struggle for from initially being uh, white propertied men to uh, gradually including women, uh, gradually including the working class, gradually including people who were who formerly enslaved, gradually and most recently including indigenous people. Um, and that category though is always porous and always subject to uh, a recognition that actually the way capitalism operates is precisely by exploiting, uh, as Marx says, the soil and the worker. And so what we're trying to do is diagnose how it is that uh, capitalism has operated through the web of life. And we, we, you know, we point to a, a couple of the big players uh, who, who get uh, you know, blamed for some of this, like Descartes, for example, who offers a way of understanding substances with the material world and, and the world of thought. Uh, but Descartes was really a stenographer for capitalism's philosophy. He was someone who wrote down how it is that capitalism was operating and exploiting the world. He was the person who was in the business of trying to draw boundaries around who it is that counted as thinking and important people and what counted as the the rest of the, the the material world that was ripe for exploitation, uh, and so the reason this matters in a discussion around um, you know, the world system, but also around health and around the, the food system, which we spend a lot of time in, um, is because. Understanding how certain kinds of being are privileged in the web of life is really how medicine and the food system and politics has operated. Who is it that is allowed to think and who is it that is allowed to feel? Uh, these are questions that matter for medicine, that certainly matter for anyone who is interested in the history of class struggle and is interested in the process of decolonization. Uh, and that's why the web of life is a useful framework in, in understanding, look, yes, we all live in and through and because of the web of life, um, but the boundaries that, have, that are in that web and the boundaries that have always been moved around as a result of struggle under capitalism are precisely the ones that we're interested in interrogating and, and moving forward through uh, our, you know, our call for decolonization. 
And as opposed to this strict bifurcation of nature and society, thinking stuff and sort of dead matter, you describe a kind of chronic entanglement between the human species being and the soil, the plants, our water systems, every kind of different life system imaginable. Draw out a little bit more the nature of that entanglement and what observing that entanglement uh, gives us in terms of a political tool of analysis. When we think about our own health as human beings and the scourge of chronic inflammatory disease, um, we can look at how the microbiota, all the different organisms that live on and inside of us, are playing a part in modulating our immune system response in the body, um, our endocrine system, the development of our brain. Um, so many parts of human development um, to function properly require all of these organisms that are not human, um, that are more than human, and that have been denuded by the same um, forces that have felled the forests around us, have felled the forests inside of us. And so when you look at communities who have a robust relationship with their surrounding ecologies that are stewarding um, the ecologies around them in dynamics of reciprocity, where there's duties of care to the web of life, um, not just the visible, but the invisible, um, that those communities have a very rich and diverse microbiota, not only inside their bodies, but on top of their bodies. I was just speaking to a microbiologist who is Yanomami from the Amazon as well. He's half Yanomami and half American. Um, and he was studying microbiology now, and he was describing to me this biofilm that's on the bodies of the community members that live in the Amazon and that have these duties of care. And this biofilm that is, is created through these microbes uh, protect against things like skin cancer. Melanoma is unheard of for people who spend most of their time outside. Um, psoriasis, eczema, these skin diseases that we see very commonly in industrialized um, humans are not present in these communities. And so it becomes a very you know, important thing to recognize and diagnose why it is that we are sick with the burden of diseases that we are seeing today. The same goes with chronic inflammatory disease such as diabetes or high blood pressure or cardiovascular disease. Um, we know that a lot of these chronic um, illnesses have inflammatory components and the gut microbiota is playing an important role in shaping what kind of um, immune response will occur in a body. Is that a, an inflammatory response or, or not? It's not simply just a metaphor like won't we all just get along better with the web of life if we're all you know, just taking care of the forest, but it's actually to our benefit with regards to our health. That's on a microscopic level. On the macroscopic level, we see that these places that are being stewarded with care and duties of care to the web of life are more resilient in the face of climate catastrophe. So when you have this biodiversity around you, here in California, those areas that have beavers in their rivers, the beavers are these keystone species that are the masters of biodiversity, where beavers live, biodiversity thrives because they're creating all of these ecotones, these places of intersection between wetland and forest, um, and the species thrive, um, species thrive in those spaces. And so when you look at the wildfires, those places that have beavers don't burn because that soil has been saturated by that water um, and, the, and the breadth of biodiversity of the forest is, is different than the forest that we're seeing um, burn um, throughout, throughout our state at very high temperatures. I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on how that 
process of inflammation operates on a systemic global level, as you diagnose within the book. You know, the planet is literally in flames. The many life systems within it have uh, many different ways of experiencing what you describe as inflammation. And then it, there, of course, is the sort of literal inflammation that we experience uh, as a bodily process. And I'm wondering if you could draw out what that um, process looks like for people who are maybe more um, disconnected from the web of life as uh, you were talking about. So inflammation, the inflammatory response is a healing response of the immune system or of the body um, to address damage or the threat of damage. Um, and so when damage occurs in the body or the threat of damage, such as the stress response, when you're running away from a tiger or afraid of being evicted from your home, those cells in the body activate a whole cascade, a whole pathway of um, messengers and responses to restore the body from a stress state or a wounded state into a state of homeostasis or balance and healing our optimum functioning condition. Now with a paper cut or an acute inflammatory ex experience, um, once that wound is healed, the inflammatory response goes quiet. But what we see with chronic inflammation is that the damage keeps coming and that the wound, um, the, the response never goes quiet. And so what was once a healing response those mediators go on to create collateral damage and systemic inflammation in the whole body. You know, when we're just talking about the microbiota of the gut, we know that people who have um, very diverse microbes in their gut um, have low levels of chronic inflammatory disease. Now that's an association. It's not that X creeds, you know, Y, um, but it, it's, it's pointing to something. Um, and so when you look at the people on planet earth who have the least biodiverse guts, on the planet is the people who live in U.S. urban centers. And our U.S. urban centers are characterized by a lack of access to nature, um, not enough trees, um, wide social disparities, people you know, being forced to sleep on the sidewalks, getting swept up like trash on the sidewalk. Um, so there's these um, social conditions um, and the violence that we're seeing through societies organized through what we're calling the colonial capitalist mindset. Um, creates a whole suite of stress responses in the body. Um, and so what we came to understand in writing this book was that the immune system isn't a bunch of, you know, white blood cells policing the edges of the body, um, like some sort of border patrol, but rather more like a symphony that's harmonizing to the world around us. And if the world around us is organized through ecological destruction and social oppression, the immune system will sound out the full range of inflammation. If the world around us is actually structured through care and duties of care, um, you don't see that response. And, and that was very striking to me. The thing that really struck me that you know, in writing this book with you that really sort of blew the top of my head off was the idea that uh, your body operates uh, as a, a narrative engine. Part of what makes inflammation worse is the threat of damage. Humans only interpret threats through narratives, through understanding where we sit in the world and how it is that we tell ourselves stories to live together. Uh, and if the stories that we tell are as people of color living under a white supremacist state, then we're much more likely to be inflamed just from needing to sleep with one eye open. Uh, in fact, black Americans have inflammatory profiles and responses uh, that uh, you know, are essentially tantamount to never fully being able to get a good night's sleep um, because of 
the, the, the way that racial terror works and white supremacy works in this country. And I think that, that that's important because, you know, we, we, were talk, we were just talking about the web of life, but the web of life uh, doesn't divide itself up neatly into uh, packages in order to be able to profit from just by itself. It requires the police. And the history of violence that attends capitalism is something that features then in people's inflammatory responses. Uh, what, what one of the examples that... that always keeps cropping up. Um, and I think it's really important for people who are interested in understanding class. You know, any, anyone essentially listening to Novara Media should know that in things like debt, there is an inflammatory response. Like, you know, in America in particular, you know, what, what we have in, uh, in these United States is payday loans. So payday loans are these bridging loans that you get because your paycheck just doesn't come in in time to be able for you to put food on the table and pay rent and pay off the car bill uh, and pay for health insurance. Uh, and so you will take out a, a payday loan uh, and it'll be, what, 300 bucks. Uh, but the APR is 400%. So you could end up paying $800. And you need to make those loan payments uh, and the anxiety and the worry about the police you know, breaking down your door, repossessing your car, repos you know, and you're not being able to feed your family, that generates bodily consequences in terms of inflammation. Uh, and one study that we cite uh, observed that if we were to ban payday loans in this country, the suicide mortality rate would drop by 2.1%, and the fatal drug poisoning rate would drop by 8.9%. So, you know, if we're thinking about how it is that the web of life matters and how inflammation matters and how storytelling matters, then here's an example about how the, you know, the material world of economics and of working class poverty translates into our bodies in ways that are uh, you know, not only preventable through banning these kinds of economic uh, practices, but which our bodies react to and, are gener you know, and generate inflammation because of the ways that particularly the working class are forced to move through capitalism. Your framework flips on its head a metaphorical understanding of the state as a body, which is so often used to justify violence. Policing is often couched in the language of epidemiology as sort of hotspots and that kind of thing. And you push back against a very common understanding of the immune response itself as a response to foreignness as opposed to a response to harm. Yes, that's the um, beautiful work of Dr. Massinger, um, who has advanced this theory of immunology called, you know, the danger theory. She understood that this idea of foreignness, that, you know, the white blood cells are just there to, wait, you know, ward off the foreigners, didn't really um, provide the explanatory power around several phenomena in life uh, or actually how the immune system works. And actually, our understanding of the gut now is not the way the science is actually um, advanced, that there's a lag of maybe 20 or 30 years between what basic science is telling us and where medicine is and where medicine is deeply entrenched in these very colonial mindsets that developed at a time when Europe was around conquering other people's um, lands. Um, and used these uh, perspectives that come from the Enlightenment to do that work. Um, and so medicine was a part of that, was a part of the missionaries and the militaries and the doctors. And so how uh, physicians and the medical system is complicit in recreating those um, systems of colonial terror within within the um, medical system is, is important for us to look at because people are being actively harmed in those systems today. And it's not there to serve everybody in the same way. And we can see that, you know, with something as 
you know, banal as the fact that pulse oximeters that measure your oxygen level in your blood um, are not designed for black folks. So people with more melanin will register that they have actually a higher level of oxygen than there, there actually is in the blood. So if that was used as a criteria for admitting people to the hospital from the emergency room for COVID, if your oxygen saturation was less than 92, you got admitted for moderate to severe COVID. If it was higher, you could go home and wait it out. Well, if you're black and your, your pulse oximeter rates higher than what it actually is, you're going to go home. And it's that delay in oxygen and that delay in care that leads to deaths in COVID. The, the damn tool to measure it was uh, calibrated to white skin. So it's baked into the system. Even the, you know, the very tools that we use, we can't even measure um, what we're seeing in people who don't, aren't white and male. Time and again, um, we see that actually medicine is part of an arsenal of state power that's being used in certain uh, contexts against certain people. So, you know, it, it's not as if when Columbus came over and uh, and then the conquistadors came, you know, there were some medics sort of mopping up after everyone else saying, oh, no, it's, oh we're awfully sorry. You know, it's not some Monty Python thing. Well, you know, we're not with them. Uh, we're the good guys here. Uh, I mean, medicine has always been part of the structures of society, and that's why, you know, the, the language that obtains in society around otherness and around division features in the way that, for example, immuno immunology works. That's why, you know, the, the language that we have at the moment is, oh, you know, I'm fighting something off. My body is pure, something's coming in, I'm fighting it off. As Rupert's saying, you know, the, the, the science suggests that actually that's, that's not how it works. Because if actually that's how it works, then, you know, uh, people who are pregnant would fight off uh, the, the embryos within them. Uh, and that's not how it works. It's, it, you know, th th there's a complex dance between understanding uh, who it is you know, and what it is when the beings that are in us that are, um, you know, th that we have learned to live with and those that we are learning to live with but you haven't yet. You know, the, the idea that, uh, you know, the, the, the medical industrial complex has not generated things for people of colour, that shouldn't come as a surprise. I mean, uh, you know, one of the, the things that we, we cite um, is a very recent study from 2016 where 58% of the general white US population in 2016 believed uh, that black skin was thicker than white skin. Now, this is racist, it's not true, but that's what they believe. 58% believe this racist thing. Um, but 40% of first-year medical students believe that, and 20% of fourth-year medical students still believe that. At some level, that's shocking, and it should be shocking. And at another level, it shouldn't be shocking. In a racist society, uh, that kind of data point, that 20% of fourth-year white medical students believe that black skin is thicker than white skin, um, that, that, that is a reflection of society, and of course it reflects uh, through medicine. And, you know, the, the, the idea of pulse oximeters then being calibrated to white men um, shouldn't come as a surprise at all. So often when we talk about institutions of medicine, we think of them as uh, neutrally knowledge gathering uh, centres of science without ever digging into what we mean when we talk about science and you know, who gets to acquire knowledge and what that means. And particularly in the long shadow of uh, COVID denialism, there's a lot of, I guess, scorn around people who distrust medical institutions uh, in a way that seems to erase any kind of questioning of whether those institutions might have some reason to be distrusted historically by certain groups. On all sides, whether you're talking about extreme right-wing folks, extreme left-wing folks, you know, radical people in um, the movement for Black Lives, I've heard all this COVID denialism from all sides of the political spectrum, which has been 
very fascinating to me to see that. It doesn't land squarely in any single place. And I think that's because people have um, real gripes with medicine as an institution that medicine has not reckoned with. Even now, when we're talking about structural determinants of health, as if we're going to give a nod to those things that you know are causing um, some of these dynamics, there is never um, a discussion of those things that created those structural de determinants of health. What are the political and historical determinants of those structures? And how do we address them at that level? And so when we focus narrowly on, oh, are you drinking too much or are you, um, you know, eating or an organic diet um, or are you getting enough exercise, um, that is a framework that constantly um, puts the responsibility of these diseases on individuals when they're actually being created by social structures. Um, so it's a terrible form of medical gaslighting and people are hip to it across the medical spectrum as they should as they should be. And so it behooves medicine as an institution to do this work of unpacking the historic traumas um, so that when you see a headline like black babies are more likely to die under the care of white providers in the United States, that black women are 12 times more likely to die in childbirth in the state of New York, in the city of New York, um, in this era. Um, when you see that women are more likely to die at the hands of male surgeons, um, these are outcomes that are not unexpected if you understand the history and dynamics of power that are entrenched within the medical system. Um, it is not merely enough to do some DEI trainings and keep the power structures intact and think that everything's going to be fine. This really requires, as with society at large, a deep reckoning with those power structures, a reimagining of those power structures so that care might actually be possible. When you think of our indigenous communities here in the United States, those are some of the most vaccinated people, as if you look at different population groups in the whole country, which to me says a lot because these are people who were experiencing, you know, genocidal tactics of forced sterilization. It's not a cozy relationship. It's 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 a relationship that's really um, out of forced necessity, as so many people, um, especially from the Navajo uh, Diné uh, territories, were were dying very quickly at the beginning, at the onset of COVID. Uh, but when people understood that, okay, maybe their bodies have been primed through intergenerational trauma, through ongoing social oppression, through living in a white supremacist structured um, society that stole their lands and pillaged their knowledge and raped their women and killed their children, that they're going to have a, a more extreme reaction to COVID if their body sees the virus. This is part of the work that we must do right now is really liberating science um, and liberating medicine for all people. Um, it's not that you want to throw it all away, but let's actually get in there with the nuts and bolts and deconstruct it to be at the service of everybody. And that requires a real reckoning with power. And unfortunately, all of the things I've seen so far have been, you know, liberal moves to make people feel better without actually reckoning with the dynamics of power. It seems to me that um, when you come away from this book with a portrait of, say, an average worker on planet Earth, uh, chronically exposed to pollution, microplastics in their blood, um, at the tail end of a 600-year process of racial trauma, and then ask them uh, questions about their health that uh, can only be answered within the bounds of their physical body, something has gone seriously awry then. And I'm interested in your framework of colonial medicine as a way of understanding that. The way that modern capitalism individuates 
is obviously part of the package in the way that medicine individuates too. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, again, just to, to repeat Rupert's example about getting type 2 diabetes, um, the, the lucrative site for medical intervention around type 2 diabetes isn't soda taxes. Uh, even if soda taxes are demonstrated, particularly in Mexico, to reduce uh, the level of exposure to um, you know, sugar, sugar-sweetened beverages and therefore reducing uh, the load uh, on healthcare systems around uh, you know, the generating and treatment of type 2 diabetes. Um, you know, the, the most cost-effective ways of managing diabetes are around you know, controlling diet and exercise, but they're not the most lucrative for the pharmaceutical industry. So what, what do we get instead? Well, here in the United States, we get unending adverts about uh, new medical devices that will manage your diabetes for you uh, at the site of your body. And that this is really the only site at which uh, things need to be prescribed because ultimately it's your fault that you got here. Never to mention uh, the fact that, you know, if you are working uh, at minimum wage, uh, going from place to place, in living in areas that the food industry has specifically targeted uh, for bombarding uh, young people and communities with advertisements about uh, sugar-sweetened beverages and you know, uh, obesogenic foods, uh, it's much more likely and much easier uh, to eat food you know, on the go that is high in, uh, high in sugar than uh, you know, if you are middle income, uh, able to, to access fresh fruits and vegetables uh, and you know, have the time to prepare them uh, for you and your family. So um, this sort of individualist mode is part of how, obviously, how capitalism works, but how it is that medicine profits from that. Um, and you know, one of the, the, the ways of understanding the disrupted microbiome is to think about the ways that treatments are now being offered for a disrupted microbiome, which is the individual uh, you know, giving of pills to repopulate your denuded microbiome. Now, look, after an antibiotic, do I take uh, probiotics? Yes, I do, because it is a way of um, you know, undoing the damage that this medicine has done. But as a sort of broad therapy, it misses the, the, the wider point, which is that the reason our guts are generally so denuded uh, in terms of micro, micro, microbial biodiversity compared to, say, Yanomami communities is because we've done a great job of annihilating everything around us that might be a source of that micro, uh, you know, of a rich microbiome, uh, and then created the kinds of opportunities and jobs that never put us in direct contact with the rest of the web of life. Again, returning us to, to where we where we departed from, Melina. So, you know, I, I'm, I think that the, the, the big picture here when thinking about colonial medicine is to understand how it is that medicine features in uh, the, you know, the, the, the history of capitalism, we do emphasize colonial again and again, in part because it's a reminder that we wrote this book in the United States, which is still in fairly deep denial about the fact that this is a settler colony. And so just saying it often um, is a reminder, particularly to, to the audience here, but it's not just here that's, that's uh, you know, a, a, a colonial society. Obviously, the, the United Kingdom is as well. Um, but by observing that, we, we get to draw on some of the medics who have done some amazing work around colonialism and medicine, and in particular, Franz Fanon, um, whose work around uh, psychiatry um, in, uh, he, he was a psychiatrist, a practicing psychiatrist uh, in Algeria under, uh, under French colonization. Uh, and his approach to understanding the, the contours of power around medicine are ones that we meditate on in the book and recognize also that at the end of, uh, you know, of uh, his sojourn in Blinda, I think it was is the name of the place, um, uh, Fanon walks away from the enterprise of medicine because in part, and the quote, 
that we use is because doctors are often the landowners as well, that there is a relationship of power and property that doctors are engaged in that needs to be disrupted if actual full decolonization is to happen in medicine and you know, more broadly under capitalism. I'm wondering then what um, you envisage as a kind of corrective cosmology to what you're describing as how capitalism uh, has trained us to understand uh, our bodies from you know Darwin's kind of conceptualization of evolution as this perpetual war uh, of nature against nature or you know much more discreditedly uh, Galton's uh, race science. Yeah, I think that that goes to your um, the beginning of this conversation again to the web of life, so that our our borders of ourself are actually porous, and they're extending into the surroundings around us, and the surroundings are extending inside of us. Um, and so the 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 concept of identity needs to be reckoned with that we actually aren't individuals, um, that we can't be healthy as individuals. That health is something that really comes out of um, a set of dynamics and relationships with regards to individuals and the web of life. So if we are in cut off and sectioned away from the web of life, if we're cut off and sectioned away from each other and um, our responsibilities of care for each other, um, we cannot actually imagine what, you know, what truly health can be. Um, that health is something that 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 is emerging from systems working well together. Um, and so I think that it we really do look at cosmologies of care, cosmologies of mutual benefit and reciprocity. Um, there are these, um, you know, are frameworks that humans are living with around the planet, um, different kinds of communities. I wouldn't say any one of them has everything right and we have to be like one of them, um, but that there are some threads that we can pull from and, and listen to and learn from that actually um, require different kinds of ways of relating to land, to each other, to our food system, to our foods, um, and that those, those ways of relating um, will necessitate different structures. Um, and that's what the work of deep medicine is. It's not simply trying to treat health at the individual level, you know, get more uh, probiotics and do more meditation and yoga and you'll be fine, um, but working collectively to start reckoning with altering those structures of power um, so that these duties of care and these cosmologies of care can have space to actually, you know, really inhabit and occupy and, and dictate our behavior. Um, it becomes very hard to poison a river when that river has personhood, when that river is an entity that you are obliged to care for. Um, and, th and those are, you know, ways of seeing and thinking that um, predated, you know, the last 250 years in this area where I'm living in occupied and ceded uh, territory of Huchin. Um, but all the water here has been polluted over the last 200 years. The air is toxic. People have cancer. People are homeless. Homelessness was never um, a thing before. Everyone had um, food. Everyone had a shelter. Um, so there's a kind of a callousness here that has um, been um, the, the, the act of not caring is a hallmark of damaged relationships um, that, that, that are required for colonial capitalism to work. Um, it does not work if we all are obliged to care for each other. You'd say, yeah, you just can't do that. There'd be a lot of you just can't do that if we if we lived with that framework. So um, so I, I, that's not a neat answer, but I hope it can at least point in a direction. Uh, we are in the business of untangling the messiness as a productive c c correction to the neat 
uh, answers of capitalism which have got us to where we are, hopefully, um, at least. I'm wondering, Raj, um, in the process of uh, writing this book, has it changed how you understand uh, violence and sort of how it operates? Because I, I'm, I'm curious as to uh, if you understand uh, racial violence as a process of sort of multi-generational exposure to different kinds of uh, illnesses, for instance. There's not a clear um, uh, culprit that one can point to, but nonetheless one cannot escape the idea that violence has happened somehow so how should we rework our understandings of violence to take account of this that's a great question i mean I, 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 part, part of the reason i left the the uk was because of the racist violence that i experienced there and that was very easy to sort of point to and to say oh well these bastards are doing it um but it, having worked now with Rupa and seeing not just you know her work around police violence and around the violence uh, that is meted out daily on bodies of communities of color here, and you know, yes, America is bad, but uh, again, my experience of the UK was much much worse. Um, but the uh, the stories, I mean, I, I think one of the things that really became clear to me in the writing of this book was how violence is embedded in the stories that we tell ourselves about what is normal, right? I mean, and again, capitalist hegemony operates precisely by making the weirdest things normal. Um, and the normalization of the violence that is meted out on the working class, for instance, uh, daily is something that, you know, that, that I, hadn't really, I hadn't really joined the dots and being able to work with Rupa helped me understand about, for example, the sort of physical violence of the night shift. Um, having to work night shifts means that you're putting your body into uh, a, a deeply unusual, biologically bonkers situation that then changes from, you know, from shift to shift, and your body reacts uh, as if it has been attacked. And so, you know, in, in some of the, the, the discussion, um, we, you know, we, we talk about torture, for instance. We talk about the sort of horrors of Guantanamo that are meted out on uh, folk who are there uh, and, you know, talk about the, the sleep deprivation and the constant noise and the deprivation of human contact and the loneliness and the uncertainty. Um, and it's true. That, I mean, Guantanamo is a horrific site of maximal torture of the kinds that we experience in far more attenuated form, but most of us are familiar with loneliness, with uh, the lack of connection to nature, with uh, a regiment uh, of being in a particular place at a particular time over which we have very little control over, constant noise around, you know, uh, the strange sort of shifts in lighting, uh, around understanding vast inequalities in power where we are at the bottom of that inequality and we can see uh, an unattainable, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, summit of power above us and we can do nothing about it, uh, where we are tormented on the basis of our beliefs. All of these things are, um, are parts of the narration which our bodies carry. And one of the ideas that, that is useful in this book in understanding that is the idea of the exposome, uh, the sort of sum total of experiences that result in our good or bad health. And you can have a great exposome if you're lucky enough to be born white and middle class and um, have hot and cold running kale and you know have free time and just get to gamble in the woods, uh, all of that stuff. But uh, that, if that's part of your, your exposome, then things generally turn out better for you than if you're part of the world that makes that world possible. Talking of the exposome, I'm fascinated by how your work provides this uh, really deep challenge to sort of a techno-utopianism on the left by pointing out how global lab labour hierarchies and this uh, deep inequality of how different people are exposed to uh, things like 
mining of precious minerals that makes the sort of uh, flying cars of the future possible. And what does this kind of framework have to say to the kind of full automation left? We're all agreed that there's nothing that's too good for the working class. And absolutely, let's, I mean, <laughs> once we embrace that, we have to debate what good is and if the working class is only the working class in the global north or whether there needs to be a project of liberation and reparation for the kinds of conditions that obtain in the global north as a result of the consequence of the kind of conditions in the global south. Um, so yes, this is a challenge to the idea of fully automated luxury communism um, because full automation uh, is historically has been a, pro a process of annihilation. And yes, you know, we, we, we can all argue and understand that the Soviet Union was you know, just state capitalism. We, we haven't yet seen the sort of full idea or the full sort of span of what it is that we might imagine a sort of communist uh, vision of living in the web of life might be. But we can get close. Cuba is a really interesting uh, example here where um, through the strength of the Cuban peasantry against the Cuban state uh, in the in the, uh, the the emergency period in uh, you know uh, under when the US imposed sanctions after the fall of the Soviet Union uh, things got pretty bad in Cuba um, and it was through a peasant movement demanding access to land and demanding access to good science right this is not an anti antiquated and anti-science movement uh, what peasants wanted was a, a rich agroecological system that uh, re-embedded agriculture in the web of life from previously being in uh, an agrarian society that one, one of the largest importers of chemical fertilizers in all of the Americas. I mean, Cuba was under the, the, the Warsaw Pact, the place that produced sugar and sent rum off to the Soviet Union. And Ru Russia would send uh, fossil fuels in and send uh, fertilizers uh, into Cuba in order to be able to grow these things. After the special period, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the reinvention of Cuban agriculture uh, led to much less uh, meat consumption but actually a, a, a fairly robust uh, and decentralized uh, agroecological economy in which um, the, you know, the, there was uh, an almost, almost full return to certain kinds of consumption of certain kinds of fresh fruits and vegetables, despite not having any of the apparatus of uh, industrial agriculture and chemical agriculture, which looks to be the kinds of agricultural system we'll need in the future to be able to survive the climate catastrophe. Um, and one of the things that worries me about uh, the, the sort of magic beans talk of modern uh, communist liberation, the sort of fully automated luxury communism version of, of the future, is that it is not a vision that is humble in the face of our ignorance around the web of life. Um, it, it just sort of assumes that, yeah, oh yeah, we'll be able to figure that shit out. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll set the boffins on it and then you know, there'll be a bioreactor in every neighborhood and everything will be fine. By looking at our rates of chronic inflammatory disease, uh, a bioreactor in every neighborhood that doesn't you know, expose us to the kinds of microbiome in which we as holobionts, as humans that also are homes to other kinds of living being, need in order to be able to survive and flourish. Uh, if, if, we, if we are ignorant about that and we just assume that there's going to be a machine for that, um, we are not fully embracing the, how little we know and how little we matter uh, in the wider web of life. And I think that this kind of supremacism uh, against nature is a reductio ad absurdum of the idea that you know what we need is just uh, you know broad spread you know widespread ownership of the means of production and therefore good things will happen I'm for widespread ownership of the means of production that makes perfect sense but the, the, absent the, the humility of understanding how it is that first of all capitalism has caused the climate catastrophe and the scale of the work that's needed to repair it not just in terms of reparations but in terms of we reweaving the web of life that kind of lack of humility worries me deeply 
deeply because it's that lack of humility that got us here in the first place. Well, and I just want to tag on to that. Like I just saw a headline about Larry Ellison doing this huge um, hydroponic thing in Hawaii. Like, oh, we're going to feed Hawaii, um, you know, these rich volcanic islands. Um, the Kingdom of Hawaii has some of the richest soil on the planet. Um, it's not good for all the crops you want to grow um, from a Western European palate, but it's great for the for the foods that the people who are indigenous to that community want to grow and, and have eaten for centuries. Um, but looking at the discussion around hydroponics, it's like here's this technocratic solution, solution to feeding the planet that um, is absent the soil. And and then to me, um, you know, oh, well, we can do more with less water, we can grow more food, um, but we just won't have any of the root microbiome, the plant microbiome, the soil microbiome. Um, so it, it's, it's that again, let's like miss the mark and in 20 years from now, where will we be with um, these diseases that are so reliant upon our exposure to microbiology? Um, and so it's, it just shows again, like what Raj is saying, a lack of humility and understanding of our place in relationship to the entire web of life, which is why, you know, um, our work is not so much, you know, throwing away technology or throwing away science. It's using science to help reorient us, allowing more peers into who is the peer of peer review so that we are getting a much richer story and narrative about who we are and how we are healthy and how we can repair a planet that has been damaged by 600 years of a mindset that is delusional, not only delusional, but, but damaging. Um, and so that requires, you know, old and new retellings of stories, reimaginings, um, and reorienting ourselves back to, you know, being creatures on this earth. I'm curious as to why you don't use the framework of disability to talk about the ways in which people interact with this uh, global network of, of harm and sickness, particularly in relationship to how you frame Engels's work of uh, the condition of uh, the working class in England as a sort of epidemiological work, because he does seem to point to the position of the working class per se as a kind of social death but of course people uh, because of their disabilities uh, their race their uh, relationship to the means of production and dispossession have different kinds of social death so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on those that topic a lot of the book is geared towards reframing the idea of diagnosis and Disability is one of the things that gets reconfigured in that discussion. Um, so you're right, we, we don't draw on crip theory as explicitly as we should. And I think you know, in the care section right at the end where we talk about the care revolution, that's the closest that we come really to fully engaging with your question. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you're bringing it up. Um, I think you know, maybe in a, in a future edition, you know, it, it's a couple of paragraphs away from being much more explicit. But our stories about... Uh, how it is that social death is managed, and um, you know how necropolitics uh, is is managed is something that we, we talk about in almost every chapter. Whether it's talking about uh, the management of life and death in uh, Indian uh, slums, or talking about the same in shack dweller communities in South Africa, um, we we do talk about the ways that 
bodies are managed by the state and uh, talk about that you know, really through, for example, our discussion around how the working class in the United States is conditioned to be permanently inflamed through sub-minimum wages uh, and the constant stresses of debt. We talk about uh, the, the, the sort of healing technologies uh, around that generated by communities who are in the front line, like uh, in the shack dweller community in South Africa, you know, ideas of the sort of practices of Ubuntu really matter. Um, and they matter more than ever. I mean, you know, this, this weekend, for example, uh, a comrade in the Abatlali Basem John Dolo Shack Dweller movement, we, you know, who, who uh, we featured in, in the book, was assassinated. Um, uh, Lindo Kuchle Mguni was killed precisely because of his engagements around reconfiguring uh, not just how it is that the community was interpolated and made to not care for the land that they were on and not care for one another, and his interventions in creating an agroecological community driven by ideas of socialism uh, and you know, and black power uh, were very threatening to the ANC. And it, it, it appears to be that uh, folk associated with local ANC thugs allegedly uh, were involved in his killing. So you're right, we, we don't explicitly uh, draw on crypt theory, we don't talk about disability uh, as disability. Instead, what we, what we do is uh, understand how capitalism pathologizes and how its narratives and how its technologies of diagnosis are in fact symptoms of uh, dysfunctional and bad medicine. I know, Rupert, if that, if that, if that resonates with you. Yeah, and that's where the framework of the exposome that we go into heavy detail in the book is, is really helpful um, because it shows how the exposures that have been um, designed through colonial capitalism are forms of biological warfare against certain races or classes of people. Um, and so that disability becomes actually impossible to avoid. It becomes impossible to avoid these illnesses, just like um, with COVID, um, if you look in capitalist societies, it's become a mass disabling event. You have so many people from the working class who are unable to work um, because now of long COVID, because of, um, you know, just how this uh, infection on, you know, infection upon infection is creating a, uh, you know, just a, a destruction of our healthy immune system and our, and our body's proper cardiovascular, neurological, um, endocrine functioning. Um, so this this framework is is I think throughout the book, but it isn't explicitly um, tied to uh, you know disability or um, crypt theory. But I think that it's it, it is actually everywhere in how we discuss the exposome, which is a, I think a really important um, framework um, to think about uh, health and medicine these days. There was just a study that came out that showed that rainwater around the world has been polluted by uh, forever chemicals, the PFAS, the ones that we discuss in the book. So even, you know, when we do start to develop, you know, grassroots movements to try to um, secure our care through harvesting rainwater or through developing systems that are adjacent to or outside of our dominant systems for getting food, water, shelter, medicine, um, it is going to be impossible to do those things with any meaningful moves towards health until we start dismantling those structures that are continuing to pollute and make the air toxic or continuing to make our social environments toxic. The connections that your uh, framework of the exposome has with crypt theory, to my eyes, is this uh, fundamental insistence on the value of life 
per se and it very much contrasts with this utilitarian uh, strictly productive analysis of what uh earns uh, a human earns our right to exist and thrive on this planet and it puts me in mind of a recent statement by um Noah Yuval Harari who wrote uh, Sapiens a brief history of humankind that we don't need the vast majority of the population and it makes me wonder okay when you're entering uh, a terrain of discussion that's so freighted in uh, in its discussions of this collective us, you know, of ecology, of global medicine. Who is that we, that us that you are writing about and for? I think our perception really is about life, pers- like life in itself. So it's the human we, the non-human we, the planetary we, the ecosystems we, and all of those um, spaces of intersection between communities of of life and living. It's the mountain we, it's the river we, it's the reassigning of personhood to things that the colonial capitalist cosmology has robbed of its internal inherent value and personhood. Um, And so I think that as we look at these, you know, people with mindsets that continually hack away the value of personhood, like what is allowed to be a person um, you see a constant degradation of those things that are actually critical for for us to thrive, meaning human life, but also non-human life. And that's what really was a beautiful surprise for me in the end as we came to the end of the book and the writing was the understanding that emerged that health is not something that you can just look at as a characteristic of an individual, that you can't be healthy alone if the world around you is on fire or the, the water is polluted or the rainwater now has toxic endocrine disrupting chemicals in it. Um, You can be healthy when those systems are healthy, not just you, but your whole community. However, that is defined, whether it's the people in your family, the people in your neighborhood, or you in the more than human life that you interact with on a, you know, minute to minute basis that keep you healthy. Um, So that's the we that we were thinking of in our book were the microbes that are, you know, a part of dictating how healthy we will or can or cannot be um, to the, you know, to the to the people who are tending the forests in ways that they have for thousands and thousands of years who have been determined to be disposable by colonial capitalists, you know, um, mindsets for at least the last 600 years and ongoing the decimation of indigenous people's knowledge and the way that they tend uh, forests is, is critical for human survival all over the planet. Um, and so there is no, you know, disposable part of this we that we're discussing. There's also a sort of practical element here um, where, you know, when, when we're writing a book together, um, you know, the, the the we that we've ended up using in the book is a sort of hybrid of both of us. Um, and in, again, in the final chapter of, uh, of the book, we draw on... Uh, traditions here in Turtle Island are called double wampum, where we're uh, where we we split our voices back into their constituent parts and then remix them, um, and that's just because you know the, this the act of writing this book was precisely an act of uh, of sort of melting into one another's writing, uh, and the the we the voice that comes out of this is something that isn't either us either of us alone you know uh, in the in the same way that sort of Gibson Graham uh, writes themselves together uh, we kind of did the same in this book I just want to pick up something that Rupa was saying about the value of all life it is important that we value all life but one of the things that's happening here in the United States for example is uh, the push towards fetal personhood uh, as an anti-abortion strategy 
Uh, and it's, I mean, I, I think it's important not to run away from that, but to recognize uh, that there's, you know, th there are stories that we tell and stories that are rooted in power uh, and in uh, histories of oppression that, that we spend a lot of time talking about. Um, and the, the sort of white supremacist uh, push towards, uh, you know, the, the the granting of personhood to fetuses is entirely consonant with the, you know, the, the, the capitalist, uh, you know, colonial narratives of who it is, whose life matters, and what counts as life, and what counts as meaningful life. Um, but it's, you know, this is this is to say, look, we're we're not uh, responding to that with a, a kind of veganism that uh, values all life equally. Uh, every life uh, in every cosmology has its place, uh, and what we're trying to do is suggest that the capitalist cosmology uh, that we live under is not the only possible set of narratives and relationships. Uh, and pointing out those inequalities in power and the consequences of who bears those inequalities in power uh, in the web of life uh, lets us reinterrogate who it is uh, that society allows to live, to die and to suffer. Does a question like abortion rights, like an individual's right to choose who they do or don't gestate for nine months at a time, does that trouble at all your uh, picture, your cosmology of us as individuals always being porous and slightly less bounded because there are understandable concerns about the need for a sort of very uh, bounded, very unitary sense of the feminized body in order to be able to attach rights to it. Yeah, I don't think that um, these things are, you know, mutually exclusive. I think that we can have a more subtle and complex understanding of identity that is informed by what we know about um, microbiology and ecology and these things that are that we're learning about the microbiome. Um, for example, that we 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 talk about the dissolving of identity in that way, and still understand how colonial capitalism has reduced women to reproducers of the labor force. Um, and that when women are not participating in political discussion, when we're not shaping how things happen and we're relegated to being in the house and reproducing children, you know, the, the labor force, um, that is a dynamic of power and that requires a, a resting with that dynamic of power. Um, so there's absolutely necessary times to understand um, how power has been allocated, where women's place has been in the colonial capitalist mind mindset, um, to be able to fight that and, and assert our place um, in in the political sphere and in the discussions around, you know, who who has control over our bodies. Um, so I, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. Our, our our depth of understanding of how we fit into the entire web of life does not deny us our identity and our borders of ourselves um, to be able to advocate for our rights and our dignity as human beings, as individual human beings. When we start talking about the immune system, for example, um, some of the problems of thinking about uh, aliens and invaders in the, in the immune system are prompted by the, 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 the sort of uh, immunological problem of pregnancy, because here's this other being that seems to be okay to have in your body, whereas other beings are not okay. So there's, there's clearly something different about, uh, you know, the, the, a, a reproducing human. Um, but the, the language that gets used to describe that and to frame that is about, uh, the, you know, the being that belongs and the being that doesn't. And that language and that cosmology 
is actually, I mean, behind some of the the the, the pro life activity, certainly here in the United States, where uh, pro life positions sit very well along uh, white supremacist ideas about a declining white. Uh, population and replacement theory. Uh, so understanding that there are relationships of power precisely in the control of reproduction of uh, you know, of the working class and uh, in particular around you know, th th this long history of white supremacism when it comes to managing not just black women's bodies and white women's bodies, but everyone's bodies and, and, and particularly every woman's body uh, and every person who is reproducing. Uh, that you know, th th that long history is something that we spend a lot of time trying to unpick so that we can take reasoned political positions when we start invoking this, you know, the, 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 the liberal idea and the state bound idea of rights uh, over uh, over bodies and rights to, to, to make decisions uh, against, you know, forced birth. That's why I find the use of this human collective us in a way that doesn't dovetail into some kind of Malthusianism or a collapse into saying, well, it's humanity who's the virus, it's humanity who's the problem behind climate change, pollution, all of these kinds of ideas. Um, because so often in uh, discussions around any kind of distribution of resources, sharing of land, it becomes such fertile territory for, say, white supremacist fear-mongering around the Great Replacement for a sort of more uh, subtle but no less nefarious left-wing idea around um, uh, population shrinkage, which is just deeply colonial. And I'm wondering sort of how you found it to be sort of navigating these you know, deeply reactionary kinds of uh, green nationalisms in your, in your work and how you kind of combat that within uh, the spaces in which you operate. I think that um, for the the overlapping, I guess what, the way that I see it, when we go back to you know six hundred years ago to the um, enclosure of the commons, to the removal of women, um, the to the removal of women from positions of power around medicine, let's say in Europe, um, to how arrangements of power um, started to be enforced in Europe before they went outside, before they went to Ireland, before they went to Africa and then to the Asia and um, Turtle Island, that those arrangements of power um, were translated into these other spaces and that what was what was started there was continued in these other forms and other spaces. And so that I think it's it's actually necessary to 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 go back to those places and see okay where did this thought process start what were the assumptions that were made um, around separating humans from nature around separating man from woman around spreading the world on these dichotomies and then enforcing these um, hierarchies of power um, and then how have they been translated into these other spaces I find that that's one helpful way of starting to um, look at and, and kind of push back in these, uh, you know, green nationalist spaces is like here on the left. We saw with COVID, you know, the left and the right kind of meet um, with some of these people in the, you know, regenerative ag space in a very creepy way around vaccinations um, and the lack of duty to care for one another around being an anti-vaxxer. Um, and so people who were on 
you know, who were black nationalists here in the United States fighting against white supremacy, we're seeing eye to eye with white supremacists who were fighting the state, telling them what to do with their bodies um, around around vaccination. And I think that it's important to think about, you know, where where is the duty to care? How has it been sundered? How has it been allocated along these lines of power? And it doesn't matter then if you're you're black, white, you know, indigenous, who you are in that sort of identity politics spectrum. When you look at, um, you know, the duty to care, and that's where I I I had some pretty heavy conversations with folks who I agree with politically in many many ways who were refusing to vaccinate um, around how we take care of each other. And going back to that, okay, so where are the um, who are the people in your midst who are the most vulnerable and what are your duties to care? And that I, I felt has been a useful framework. But Raj, how about you? I have to say the uh, the organic fo- you know, food types who hold dear the idea that their body is a temple of purity and therefore um, you know, no, nothing from Bill Gates or from Syngenta or Monsanto will ever contaminate this temple of pure kale. Um, is really very similar to the the kinds of madness um, that you hear from folk like Alex Jones, for instance. I I mean, I I live here in occupied Texas in Austin. Uh, In fact, when I first came, people from uh, Infowars came to me and were like, oh yeah, you don't like Monsanto. We don't like Monsanto. You should come on our show. We we, we talk about this stuff all the damn time. Um, And it's not surprising to me that uh, that that strain is also behind, for example, that the uh, the white supremacist killings here in El Paso, uh, in Texas, you know, the, the, the El Paso shooter, um, went into, uh, a, a Walmart to execute, uh, people he thought were Mexicans because they were taking our resources, ours being American resources. Uh, and you know, because climate change is real and because Malthus is right, uh, these, you know, th- th- these less than people needed to, to be told, uh, in no uncertain terms, in a hail of lead, that they, you know, that, that this was not their place. As Rupert says, it's very easy to see where, uh, particularly in the United States, these uh, these sort of triumphal capitalist individualists um, on the left and the right uh, find some very disturbing common ground. Uh, and part of our mission was to really, you know, to, to, to critique them both. Let's talk for a moment about what those uh, communities of care, what those duties of collective care might in fact look like. Uh, Rupert, I believe that you've done extensive deep work in this area. Yeah, so some of the work we've been doing with the Do No Harm Coalition, which is a group of uh, collective of healthcare workers who organize to address healthcare through um, pushing back on state violence. Um, are ways in which we can expand our pers- like understanding of what it means to affect health outcomes in our communities. So during the COVID pandemic, we worked in many different ways to ensure that people who were on the streets got into hotels. We worked in ways to make sure people didn't get evicted. Um, some of those are direct action techniques. Some of those are you know, shaming the mayor of San Francisco in front of her home. Um, Some of them are making sure that we work within the healthcare system so that people aren't harmed um, when they had to leave the system. Um, But those are ways in which we mobilize what we call our white coat privilege. So how can we as healthcare workers start to understand the social structures that are driving illness um, so that we mitigate harm and start to 
start to shift those start to shift those structures. Um, it is extremely challenging. I know in the in you know during COVID, uh, I was forced to discharge patients from the hospital um, who were elderly, who had gotten over COVID, who there was no hotel room for them to go to, or maybe they didn't have COVID and there was no place for them to go. And there were wildfires and the, and the air quality outside was, you know, hazardous for human health. And um, there was no, you know, then the hospital was impacted. So we had all these COVID patients coming in through the emergency room. And so you're being pushed, okay, you need to get this person out. And you're asking, well, where can they go? Well, there's no place for them to go. So then you become an agent of this violence of this, uh, the violence of, you know, capitalist medicine and capitalist society by signing that discharge order. Um, and so this is a very important, you know, moral moment for us as healthcare workers. And when, when we talk about the burnout that people are experiencing, all these nurses, you know, 20% of them walking off the job, doctors are leaving the profession. I, we hold um, a session every month down on this farm that we're working to return to indigenous people called Heal the Healers. And every month, work, healthcare workers come down and most of them are considering leaving the job. Um, and when we talk, talk about burnout, you know, yes, there's many reasons why we have been burnt out, but COVID really put it all under a microscope is that we're living in a society where there is no architecture of care. So no matter what you do, you will become an, a participant in the violence of the society as a physician when you've been, you know, taken an oath to do no harm. Um, and so it necessitates a restructuring of that violent sh social structure. There's no way around it if you want to get different health outcomes. Um, otherwise, we're all just sort of talking into the wind. And so that, you know, COVID, COVID really highlighted that. So for us, you know, the work of the Do No Harm Coalition really dovetails into the work of the Deep Medicine Circle, which is an organization I founded last year in the, in the midst of COVID to get land back for indigenous people and start farming in a way where farmers just focus on healing the land and feeding the people. Um, and we're currently producing over, I guess, about 15 to 1800 pounds a week from two farms of organic food that we're just giving away to communities who are impacted by, by um, you know, who aren't able to eat because of inflation and, and the food that they get in the food banks from the food banks are full of pesticides and they're ultra processed foods. So we've been just giving folks access to healthy organic foods. Um, and that experience, I, I had a patient in the hospital a couple of weeks ago who gets his food at one of these uh, hubs. And I saw him and he has sickle cell disease. I've seen him for 20 years off and on in the hospital with his sickle cell crises. And this time he was in the hospital with COVID and sickle um, cell. And um, we were talking, he's like, what have you been up to? And I said, oh, we're, we're, we're working on this farming. We're doing this work for farming. And he's like, oh, are you the guys who are providing this organic food? Because about three weeks ago, people rolled up with all this delicious lettuce and this all these foods and and i said that's that's us and he's like we you know people who are standing there they said they felt cared for just by receiving that food that that seeing the beauty of that food and the and the kind of care that was taken by the farmers to grow that food for that community um that is a sort of intangible um for someone like this patient um that had real meaning and it was exciting to me to think of you know what what could happen if you could scale that care um, so that people who are, um, you know, typically only exposed to the dregs of, you know, corporate capitalist agriculture, our food system, get food that's grown specifically for them, culturally relevant to what they need and what they want, um, 
and 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 grown in the most loving way for the earth and for the people. Um, and so that's some of the most inspiring, you know, very extremely local, based in this territory, Ramatush and Chechenyo um, speaking people's territories. Um, and it's been very beautiful. That's really beautiful to hear about. And I think one thing that a lot of people might be worried about hearing those stories no matter how inspiring is that we are continually told that agribusiness is how we feed the world in terms of just a baseline caloric intake and so how do we merge those pictures of a kind of rooted care-driven way of feeding ourselves feeding each other with the uh, necessities of scale the, the first response i think is that agribusiness is doing a shit job of feeding the world. Um, <laughs> there it is. If you look at the uh, the, the the data around um, uh, chronic undernourishment, uh, if you look at the data around food insecurity, um, you've got to ask: Well, you know, if agribusiness is so great, why is it that uh, around eight hundred and fifty million people are chronically undernourished over a course of a year at the moment, uh, and over two point three, two point four billion people are food insecure? Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's there's some fairly straightforward uh, evidence to, to to push back against that. Um, and then, uh, when one looks again at data and evidence, because this this was you know this this book is based in nothing but science. Uh, if you look at the science around uh, sustainable agriculture and agroecology, um, you can see improved indicators and more uh, being eked from the land per unit area on small farms that are engaged in agroecology than you can from large farms that are built around um, industrial chemistry and industrial agriculture. Uh, so I, th I think part of what needs to be reckoned with is uh, the the success of the PR mas machine around industrial agriculture. Um, I mean, it, it's certainly the case that if we are all to eat well in the 21st century under the uh, you know uh, under the climate catastrophe, even after um, you know late capitalism comes to its end, uh, we will need to change our diets. Uh, but that's no bad thing. Again, our diets are constant sources of inflammation, and if we are going to be moving towards more sustainable food systems, that's better for the planet. That's better for us, and uh, it can be arranged in ways that make sure that everyone gets fed. Um, but bear in mind that you know industrial agriculture depends on the exploitation of the soil and the worker. And uh, you know, in the United States, seven out of the 10 worst paying jobs in America are in the food system. The food system doesn't work without uh, you know, the exploitation of workers, the exploitation of reproductive labor, the exploitation of the planet. Uh, and once you factor those things back in, industrial agriculture doesn't make any financial sense and it doesn't carry on producing in the volumes uh, along certain indicators that it currently does. So I, I think we're okay uh, when it comes to having ideas to replace industrial agriculture with. Uh, the, the, you know, really one of the big lock-ins uh, is our inability to imagine and to see uh, the ways in which a post-industrial agricultural future is already with us. Uh, and what we need to do is uh, you know, work with the movements that are already practicing that to make it more widespread. But th this is all movement work. And again, this brings me back to um, the, the killing of uh, Lindo Gushle Nguguni, uh, uh, who you know, was involved precisely in occupying land in urban uh, downtown in, in Durban in South Africa uh, and growing food on it that could feed uh, the hundred people, the, the hundred shack dwellers who are part of that uh, of, of that commune. Um, 
and you know why that is so threatening to the state is precisely because it works. If if you know if, if these people sort of frittering away their time uh, and achieving no impact at all, then the state wouldn't care. But the fact is, on that land, it was working and it needed to be smashed. And those ideas of black power and of socialism that were independent of the ANC and independent of its hegemony were incredibly threatening. And I think that that's. That's what we're seeing more and more when it comes to land defenders, when it comes to people who are speaking up against uh, the hegemony of colonial capitalism, wherever it is. Um, they are under threat uh, because, not because they are irrelevant, but because they are uh, so so successful and so potent in spreading those ideas elsewhere. You've articulated a kind of behemoth of interlocking systems of different oppressions that all dovetail towards inflammation, illness and trauma living inside our bodies. So I'm wondering with the weight of that task, how do we as individuals and communities start that process of healing? I think they should start where they are. Um, so, and also, I guess, question the assumptions um, of, you know, where they are. So I, I was just thinking of anything that can reconnect us to the earth, um, to earth systems. I'm a big fan of agroecology because of um, just the primacy as, as a physician, as a doctor, as someone who works to take care of people's health, um, the primacy of working to heal the soil and understanding the ways in which urban environments have been created to denude our exposure to healthy soil and to remove us from earth-based systems of rhythms, of um, seasons, of, you know, knowing um, what our bodies need, these kinds of connections. Um, are really helpful to not only reconnecting ourselves, but then reconnecting with our communities um, and starting to do that mutual aid work. I think mutual aid work is a great starting spot for, for all of this because that's where um, the duties to care will become exposed, reawakened in us, um, that we can't just step over someone on the sidewalk, that we actually have an obligation to make sure that they have um, a place to stay, food to eat, medicines that they need. Um, and so, I, I, I feel like if there are any ways for people to occupy land, seize land, be on land, re, you know, take land and put it into production um, of healthy food, um, that's a good place to start. I mean, I was just on the, the Novara Media website seeing just a range of amazing organizations that folk can connect with. But um, the international peasant movement, La Villa Campesina, has over 250 now million members uh, around the world who are peasants, landless workers, and land workers. And uh, in fact, the Land Workers Alliance in the United Kingdom uh, is the, uh, the, the the UK outpost for La Villa Campesina, and they're doing amazing movement building work. Uh, and they recruit, and they're a union of farmers, growers, foresters, and land-based workers, and uh, they would be very pleased to hear from you. Um, so do check them out as well. I think on that note, that sounds like all we sadly have time for. Rupamaria Raj Patel, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for being such a careful reader and, and for these great questions. Thank you so much. I've been Eleanor Penny. This has been Navara FM. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Rivka Brown, commissioning editor and reporter for Navara Media. Thanks to our listeners, readers and viewers. We're so happy to announce that Navara Media now has the backing of over 10,000 monthly supporters. We couldn't produce a single second of our podcast without this regular support. 
It's amazing to know that so many of you are as determined as we are to defy the mainstream media and take independent journalism to the next level. We can't wait to show you all we've got planned. Thank you.